Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of violence, suicide, murder, and genital mutilation. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. "'Twas the night before Easter Sunday in 1937. Mary Gideon's body lay underneath the bed she shared with her daughter, Ronnie. Mary's killer sat on the mattress, anxious for his next victim to walk through the door. He'd come to the Gideon's apartment to enact a human sacrifice. However, Mary wasn't his main target. As he waited for his real mark, he began a sort of meditation. He referred to this practice as visualization. He believed that if he closed his eyes and concentrated, he could connect with the cosmos, then project anything he visualized into reality. One way he did this was through art, such as sculpting and drawing. With this technique, he hoped to attain godliness. He intended to travel back in time, connect with powerful figures, and journey to the thrones of heaven. Perhaps he could even become immortal. But in order to do that, he needed to rid himself of what drained his energy in the first place, lust. Tonight, he intended to kill the object of his infatuation. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our final episode on the 1937 Easter Sunday killings. Last week, we covered the false investigation into Joseph Gideon and how Ronnie Gideon's diary led to a new suspect. This week, we'll cover the manhunt across New York City, the surprise heroine who finally found him, and an astonishing confession. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy 
taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. The triple homicide of Mary Gideon, Ronnie Gideon, and Frank Burns on Easter Sunday, 1937, spurred a media frenzy and misguided investigation. Detective Martin Owens finally spoke with Ethel Kudner, Mary's daughter and Ronnie's sister, the following Wednesday. As a result of their conversation, investigators realized they'd been chasing false leads and wasting crucial time. Ethel told Owens about her family's former boarder, a sculptor named Robert Irwin who had romantically pursued her. Detectives had already theorized that the broken soap bar found at the scene was a sort of sculpture. And prior to her death, Ronnie had written in her diary that Irwin's obsession with Ethel frightened her. Irwin's name was a critical piece of information, but days had already passed in the investigation and it was possible that Irwin had fled the city. Owens felt a surge of panic. He rushed back to the station to inform his colleagues, but not everyone shared his sense of urgency. I'll bet my career Irwin's still close by. What makes you so sure? There's seven million people in New York City. If a man wants to go unnoticed, he just needs to blend in with the crowd. Then how do we find him? Ethel said he was in and out of psychiatric facilities, right? Let's check records around the city. Officers combed the five boroughs to obtain any record of Irwin in mental health care facilities. He had not been seen since the murders, but police were able to piece together some parts of his past. Irwin first moved in with the Gideons in October of 1932. He met Ethel and quickly developed intense feelings for her. The Gideons likely weren't aware at this point that their new boarder struggled with severe mental illness. One day, only a few weeks after moving in, Irwin suffered a mental health crisis and went out to roam the city. He attempted to cut off his own genitals. Apparently, the artist wanted to end his feelings of lust and stop himself from compulsively masturbating. Around 2.30 a.m., he walked into the emergency room at Bellevue, where doctors treated his self-injury and decided they needed to admit him to the psychiatric ward. Then in March of 1933, Irwin was transferred from Bellevue to Rockland State Hospital. Rockland was overcrowded and decaying. It had earned the nickname the House of Despair due to its use of shock treatments and forced feedings. Detectives interviewed one of the Rockland psychiatrists who had worked with Irwin. She told them what she knew about the former patient. Irwin believed he could engage his magical powers through creativity. He also believed that his feelings of sexual desire restricted his spiritual potency. And this all had something to do with his art. You mean his sculpting? Among other things, he was a talented sculptor and a sketch artist. His ability to recall details was impressive. He referred to his technique as visualization. Isn't that what all artists do? Yes, but Irwin had extreme theories about his ability to visualize. He believed it allowed him to communicate with the universe. He also believed that if he used this technique to perfect his art, 
then he could somehow transcend reality. Did Irwin ever show signs of aggression or violence? Yes. A doctor once complimented one of his sculptures, and in response, Irwin threw himself at the man. Several people had to restrain him. We knew Irwin to be calm and amicable one moment, then to explode without warning. The doctor's story disturbed the officers, but the investigators pressed on. The detectives learned that after Irwin was discharged, he went back to the Gideon household. It's unclear whether doctors felt they'd made progress with Irwin's temper, so it's safe to assume his emotions might still have been erratic. Finally, detectives found his last known address, a boarding house in upstate New York, where he studied theology for six months after leaving Rockland. Irwin was forced to leave the theological school after he attacked another student in a fit of rage. The school staff wrote a letter to Rockland State Hospital, warning them that their former patient was unstable and seemed dangerous. After Irwin left the theological school, he returned to Manhattan. He rented an attic room at 248 East 52nd Street, a building located near the Gideon's home. The landlords there told police that Irwin had begun his rent on March 26th, the same day as the murders. Police rushed to the room to see what they could find. But the space was completely empty. Detectives scanned the walls, utterly stumped. Then, an inspector called the others over to a window at the far side of the room. They all gathered and found themselves gazing down into the East 51st Street police station. The officers fumed. While they chased false leads in the first week of the investigation, the killer was living across the street. He'd probably been watching the station the entire time. Officers rushed back downstairs and demanded the landlords tell them everything they knew about Irwin. The couple said he mainly stayed in his room and that he left on Sunday, April 4th, a week after the bodies were discovered. Around the same time they searched the East 52nd Street apartment, police called a press conference. This was perhaps an effort to prevent Irwin from completely slipping from their hands and to mitigate any public humiliation. There, a police lieutenant passed out a photograph of Irwin. Reporters noted the artist's slim, clean-shaven face and narrow eyes. Then the lieutenant took the podium. He stated that Irwin was their definite suspect in the Easter Sunday killings, as the triple homicide had come to be known. Further, he explained that the NYPD believed Irwin was still in the city. Reporters were equally alarmed and eager to break the news to the public. But as the news spread, those involved in the case made their own statements, many of which contradicted law enforcement's certainty. For example, even though Ethel Kudner had helped the police, she told the press that she didn't believe Irwin was capable of hurting her family. From there, the superintendent at Rockland State Hospital also claimed Irwin could not be the killer. He said that although Irwin was occasionally violent, his hair-trigger temper calmed just as quickly as it rose. He wouldn't have had the self-control to lay in wait and attack three people. He also believed that Irwin would come clean and seek help if he committed an act like this. But these doubts did nothing to shake police suspicion. 
Commissioner Louis Valentine had members of the NYPD posted at every bridge, bus, airplane, and ferry terminal in the city. He also sent a telegram to the connecting states to request they keep watch for men matching Irwin's description. Meanwhile, the press changed their angle. Whereas they'd previously focused on Ronnie's lifestyle, they now crafted a narrative around the gifted but psychotic artist who likely killed her. Soon, they coined a nickname for him, The Mad Sculptor. But the media didn't just sensationalize the story. Various crime thriller magazines, like the ones Ronnie had modeled for, printed tributes to her. They distributed Irwin's photo, provided identifying details, and at least one offered a cash reward for tips that would lead to his arrest. And these outlets were right to seek help from the public because a tremendous break in the case was right around the corner. Up next, an unlikely heroine finds the mad sculptor. Hi, listeners. I'm Tom Morton, host of Parcast's landmark show, Real Pirates, where we set sail alongside history's most notorious villains. Dive into their world during the golden age of piracy in an immersive audio experience. Listen as experts reveal the reality of life under the black flag. There is no evidence that I have ever seen of any pirate burying their treasure. Catch our previous episodes on Major Steve Bonnet, Charles Vane, and Blackbeard. Blackbeard himself as a pirate was a larger-than-life figure. He would put candles into his hair to frighten his victims. And still to come are the stories of Anne Bonny, Captain Kidd, and Henry Morgan. Join us for new episodes every Monday as we follow the rise and fall of the most legendary outlaws ever to sail the seven seas. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. In April of 1937, the NYPD was on the hunt for sculptor Robert Irwin. They believed the artist, who suffered from severe mental illness, was dangerously obsessed with Ethel Kudner. In his quest to kill her, he murdered her mother and sister and their boarder. With around 20,000 officers searching for the mad sculptor, the department was confident they'd have their suspect soon. But as the days passed... Confidence waned. Police checked suicide reports, and they also visited mansions and shelters where homeless people lived. Suspicious, one of them might be Irwin in disguise. All these efforts were fruitless. Eventually, law enforcement was left to hope that Irwin would turn himself in. One officer made a public statement seemingly offering clemency. He told the press that Irwin's mental condition would safeguard him from being indicted or going to trial. Clearly, the investigation was running on fumes. However, at least one person was still willing to think outside the box. 
By late April, almost a month after the killings, an officer not assigned to the case took matters into his own hands. He used his former work experience as a baggage check clerk to see if Irwin might have discarded any luggage while fleeing the city. The officer searched through hundreds of unclaimed bags at Grand Central Station, Penn Station, and various bus and subway lockers. He checked the tags and picked through loose clothing and trinkets, looking for anything out of the ordinary. Eventually, on the night of April 26th, he came upon a pair of battered suitcases. Inside one of the bags, he found a sketchbook and business cards, all with Robert Irwin's name on them. The officer found something else buried in the suitcase as well. A small, baby Ben clock with glow-in-the-dark hands. It matched the description of the clock that had gone missing from the Gideon apartment after the murders. While this was a major discovery, it also proved that the month the NYPD had spent combing the city for Irwin was more wasted time. He was long gone, and unfortunately, the police didn't know where to go next. The investigation stalled for weeks. Although people continued to call in with supposed sightings all across the country, none of them were Irwin. The police could only hope that someday one of these tips would help them out. Eventually, a breakthrough came from over 400 miles away in Cleveland, Ohio. 19-year-old Henrietta Koschainski worked as a pantry maid in a Cleveland hotel. She diced vegetables, prepared desserts, and cleaned stoves to help support her Polish-American parents. Her life was relatively quiet and predictable. But soon, something unexpected happened. In May of 1937, she noticed a new kitchen worker. The handsome, charming young man introduced himself as Bob Murray. He liked talking about art and religion, and even started to sketch images of his new co-workers. About a month after he started, Bob asked Henrietta on a date. She declined. She said she didn't know him well enough yet, but she did agree to pose for a sketch. The drawing turned out to be pretty impressive. Henrietta warmed to Bob and thought they could be friends. Later that evening, Henrietta returned to her dorm room in the hotel, which she shared with a maid named Dorothy. Henrietta slumped into her bed, then asked Dorothy if she could borrow something to read before falling asleep. Dorothy handed her a copy of her favorite true crime magazine, Inside Detective. Henrietta first scanned the cover headline, which read, Veronica Gedeon, model for Inside Detective, is murdered. Inside, the editors included a description and photograph of Ronnie's killer, Robert Irwin, who was nicknamed the Mad Sculptor, and the Easter Sunday Killer. Inside Detective offered a $1,000 cash reward for information leading to Irwin's arrest. (gasps) What is it? Look at this picture! Doesn't this man look like Bob? You mean the kitchen guy? Uh, he does kind of look like him. Two days later, Henrietta approached Bob during their shift. She wanted to poke fun at his resemblance to the man shown in the magazine. Henrietta, hi. 
I was wondering if you'd like to pose for me again soon. Maybe this time I could do a full portrait sketch. Uh, sure, maybe. Hey, I wanted to ask you something. Ask away. What's your last name again? Why do you ask? Have you heard of Robert Irwin? Bob stormed off before Henrietta could finish her thought. She was stunned, but had a harsh realization. Bob was Robert Irwin. Henrietta then informed her co-workers and showed them the photo. Panic gripped the hotel staff. The manager contacted the police. By the time authorities arrived, Bob had been gone for hours. Still, they were able to figure out he'd been staying at another hotel nearby. Officers went there and learned that Bob had packed his things and left in a hurry. The following day, Cleveland police went to the Greyhound bus terminal and showed the ticket clerks Irwin's photo. Employees said that at 1.20 a.m., a man who looked like Irwin departed on a one-way trip to Chicago. Police in Ohio and Illinois were now on high alert, but the Chicago press was skeptical. They'd dealt with false leads before. So when the Chicago Tribune's phone rang on June 26th, a doubtful reporter picked up. Chicago Tribune. Hello. I'd like to give an interview and turn myself in. <laughs> oh, yeah? And who are you? My name is Robert Irwin. Oh, you're the Easter Sunday killer. Well, I'm the Easter Bunny. <laughs> Shortly after... The phone rang at the Chicago Herald and Examiner. The call was transferred to Harry Romanoff, an editor at the magazine. Romanoff, who am I speaking to? Hello, I'm a friend of Robert Irwin, the killer. I'm listening. Irwin is tired of running. He wants to give himself up, but first he wants to give a full confession. He wants to know if your paper would buy exclusive rights to his story. We can't make a deal like that over the phone. Can you meet us in person? Fine. Meet me near the Art Institute at the Fountain of the Great Lakes at 2.30. Romanoff dispatched one of his best reporters to the location, a well-known sculpture. When the reporter arrived, a man was already there waiting. Instantly, the reporter realized it wasn't Irwin's friend at all. It was Irwin himself. The reporter wasted no time. He hailed a cab for himself and the accused killer, then rode straight back to the Herald and Examiner offices. The negotiations didn't take long. Irwin agreed to sell his confession to the paper before surrendering to the police. In return, the paper would pay Irwin $5,000 for exclusive rights to his story, almost $100,000 today. The editor wrote a contract, Irwin signed it, and then they drove to a hotel. As Irwin enjoyed a bath, five people waited for him in the main room. None of them were prepared for the gruesome tale they were about to hear. Up next, the mad sculptor makes a full confession. Now back to the story. In June of 1937, a group of people from the Chicago Herald and Examiner gathered in a hotel room. 
Robert Irwin, the main suspect in a gruesome triple homicide, had agreed to sell them his story. A cameraman, a stenographer, the managing editor, and editor Harry Romanoff all waited with bated breath for his confession. It all started with the need to hone my power. Power? The energy I harness from the universe. It allows me to project what I envision into reality through art. The process is called visualization. I'm sorry, what does this have to do with the murders? Ethel. She's the key. Is that why she's alive? Mm, You don't understand. I mean to become a god. If I can perfect my visualization, I can time travel. I can go into the future and change things for mankind. I can solve the riddle of the universe. I could live forever. And you need Ethel for this? I need Ethel gone for this. She is the center of my lust. My desire hinders my power. I need her to be sacrificed. The magazine staff glanced at each other uneasily. While it was no secret Irwin was mentally ill, they hadn't realized he had a motive to kill again. Nevertheless, they let him continue. Irwin revealed that on the evening of March 26th, hours before the killings, he was in the depths of depression. He roamed the neighborhood, visiting areas that reminded him of Ethel. During this walk, he found a discarded ice pick in the gutter, He picked it up and put it in his pocket. Then he walked to the East River. Standing at the edge, he considered taking his own life. But as his mind closed in, a sudden vision washed over him. The river's flow transformed into a stream of coursing light, and then he saw Ethel's face. Irwin was completely overtaken. His vision caused him to believe he was on the brink of a transformative spiritual experience, godliness, the ultimate goal of visualization. The only problem was that he couldn't access this new level unless he sacrificed something. He interpreted his vision as a sign. Erwin turned and made his way back to his boarding room. There, he sharpened the ice pick. Just before 9 p.m., he set out for the Gideon's apartment. He buzzed the apartment, but no one answered. So he waited there for an hour until Mary finally arrived home. She was surprised to see him, but let him in to be polite. At one point, Mary asked Irwin to walk their dog, which he took as a sign of acceptance and trust. Later on, Irwin asked Mary to sit for a portrait. She obliged. As Irwin sketched, Mary's boarder, Frank, returned home. Irwin said hello, and the men exchanged pleasantries before Frank retreated to his bedroom. Irwin toiled to sketch an impressive portrait of Mary, imagining Ethel's reaction when she saw it. But he could tell Mary was becoming impatient. I believe that's enough for now. I must finish preparing tomorrow's dinner. Now, now, I won't be much longer. Don't you want to have something nice to show your family tomorrow? Wouldn't your daughters like to see it? You can finish it another time. I'll finish it now! (sighs) You must go. Not without seeing Ethel! I beg your pardon? Please, I know she'll be here soon. Just let me see her. I insist you leave! 
At this, Erwin lost it. He struck Mary. She fell to the floor and he pounced, choking her with his bare hands. She fought back, but sadly, it wasn't enough. After a long and degrading attack, Erwin dragged Mary's body to the bedroom and shoved her under the bed. Frank Burns didn't wake up during the fight. Meanwhile, Erwin sat only a wall away with blood on his hands. He still expected Ethel to show up. He knew Ronnie might arrive soon, and he didn't want to kill her because he thought she was too beautiful to get rid of. Planning to incapacitate her but not wound her, he took a bar of soap from the bathroom and scrubbed at it until it resembled a crude club. Then he went back to the bedroom, sat on the bed, and waited. Hours later, Ronnie arrived home. She spent about an hour in the bathroom. All the while, Irwin remained at the ready. Finally, when Ronnie came into the room, Irwin bolted to his feet and hit her over the head with the bar of soap. It crumbled without hurting her, so he grabbed her by the throat and held her down. Irwin admitted that things became blurry at this point. He claimed that he held Ronnie down for a long time. He remembered demanding she tell him where Ethel was and that Ronnie said she was in Long Island with her husband. Enraged by that news but unsure of what to do, Irwin continued holding Ronnie in terror for approximately two hours. Then Ronnie whispered his name and said that he would be in trouble. Irwin gripped her throat tighter, suffocating her. When he was certain that she was gone, he removed her clothes and laid her on top of the bed. By then it was nearly daybreak, and Ethel had not come home. Irwin had to face reality. He would not have a chance to sacrifice Ethel, and he killed her family members for no reason. But he still intended to get away with it, and that meant he had to get rid of the only remaining witness. By this point, it was dawn. He crept into Frank's room where the man was fast asleep. Irwin pulled the ice pick from his pocket and struck Frank with it repeatedly until he was sure the man was dead. Later, it came to light that Frank was probably hard of hearing, which advantaged Irwin. The atmosphere in the hotel room was thick. The newspaper crew was frozen in shock until one of the editors, John Deanhart, continued asking questions. What do you have to say now, Robert? I didn't want to kill anyone but Ethel. I'm sorry I killed them. Sorry won't cut it with the law, I'm afraid. I can face whatever needs to happen to me. Please understand, their lives are not lost. I will repay them by developing my power of visualization, which will help the evolution of the human race. Around 10 p.m. that evening, the Herald and Examiner published a front-page headline that read, Irwin surrenders here, confesses killing model. The Chicago police were stunned. They rushed to the Herald and Examiner building, but Irwin wasn't there. He was still in the hotel, eating dinner and playing cards with the men from the newspaper. Over in New York City, Commissioner Valentine couldn't believe the news. He sent two detectives to Illinois with an arrest warrant. However, when they arrived the next day, June 27th, the Chicago police chief noticed a typo in Irwin's name on the warrant. It had to be voided. 
While the NYPD rushed to correct their warrant, Chicago police booked Irwin instead. Reporters captured the moment, trying to get more tabloid gold out of the confessed killer. Hey, Irwin, you're looking pretty good for someone who just confessed to murder. Irwin, look over here! Let us get a good shot of that handsome face. A photographer reached for Irwin's hat, and though he was still handcuffed, Irwin leapt towards the man. Cameras flashed faster. Officers had to hold Irwin back. Eventually, the NYPD filed a corrected warrant. Irwin was flown to New York. There, he repeated his story to detectives and was placed in a holding cell. Using the $5,000 from the magazine, Irwin hired one of the best defense attorneys alive, Samuel Leibowitz. On the first day of the hearing, Leibowitz set the stage by refusing to enter a plea. He reasoned that Irwin's sanity needed to be judged before his crimes. Shortly after, however, he said that Irwin pleaded not guilty. Then he set about to prove his client was not in his right mind when he committed the murders. It took months for a team of lawyers and psychologists to assess Irwin's mental health. In the end, their report relied more on witness statements than a true evaluation. In any case, it was clear that Irwin suffered from mental illness, but he was still deemed fit to stand trial. Irwin's trial began on November 7, 1938. Irwin appeared emaciated. Apparently, he'd been starving himself in prison, thinking he could live off of his spiritual powers. On top of that, his behavior was hostile and erratic. The trial was a media circus. Witness after witness testified about Irwin's strange behavior, while doctors debated the state of his mind at the time of the crimes. By the end of the first week, Leibowitz had Irwin plead guilty to second-degree murder and focused on helping his client avoid the death penalty. The sentencing was set for November 28th, On that day, Irwin came ready with a statement, but the judge wasn't willing to hear it. Your Honor, usually asking a man if he wants to say something is a mere formality, for the ordinary prisoner is willfully aggressive against society. Please, will you permit me... Unfortunately, you have pleaded guilty to murder in the second degree. This is not the time to make a speech. But I have some facts. I don't care. I sentence you to 20 years for the murder of Mary Gideon and 20 years for the murder of Veronica Gideon and for the murder of Frank Burns. I sentence you to 99 years to life. Two guards grabbed Irwin and escorted him out of the courtroom. Even after receiving life in prison, Irwin was still thinking about Ethel. He demanded to know where she was. Irwin was transported to Sing Sing Correctional Facility. With him finally behind bars, the Gideon family started to find peace. In addition, at some point during the trial, Joseph Gideon delivered a short speech. Ethel stood beside him. Joseph appeared curt, likely because of everything the NYPD had put him through. Then, when reporters asked Ethel about her relationship with Irwin, She broke down in tears and fled the room. Joseph wasn't the only one who had a bone to pick with the police. 
After Irwin's arrest, the New York Post wrote a scathing editorial that highlighted the NYPD's multiple investigative failures. Some small good had also come from Irwin's arrest. In a publicized event, Inside Detective rewarded Henrietta Kostjainsky with the $1,000 prize for her tip. She went on a press tour and, with her newfound fame, said she hoped to pursue a singing career. Robert Irwin was transferred to Danamora State Hospital, then the Matawan State Hospital in Fishkill, New York, where he died of cancer in 1975. Despite his murderous efforts, he was not, in fact, immortal. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on this case, uh, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Mad Sculptor, The Maniac, The Model, and The Murder That Shook the Nation by Harold Schechter, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solve Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Daniel William Gonzalez, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor, Karis Allen, and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Joe Hernandez, Sammy Amounts, Cameron Nicod, Ellie Schiff, and Rebecca Thomas. Solve Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 